Okay, folks, we are in Romans 14, yes, 14, verse 13. And we are going to finish this section on the strong and the weak believer in the church. So we're going to start in 1413 and go all the way through 157, because that's really where the section ends. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, this is the day that you've made. Lord, in eternity we will look back and we'll remember this day. And we pray that it would be a day for good. A day, Lord, that we would be instructed in the way of righteousness. Lord, a day in which we would seek to edify one another and please one another and not just please ourselves. So come, Lord, by your Holy Spirit and open up this text, open up this ancient scripture and make it relevant. Apply it to our lives, Lord, that we would walk this out in all righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. About 1,600 years ago, St. Augustine made this famous statement, and you've probably heard it. He said, in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and all things charity. And the part of that statement that I want you to focus on for this morning is, in non-essentials, liberty. In non-essentials, liberty. Romans chapter 14 and the first part of chapter 15 is talking about the non-essentials of the Christian life. The secondary issues. The gray areas, we could call them. They're not black, they're not white, they're in that gray area. They're of secondary importance. They're not salvation issues. The things that Paul deals with in Romans 14 are not forbidden by God and they're not commanded by God. But what Paul is dealing with here in Romans 14 and 15 is very important. And we know that because he takes 30 verses to discuss it. He takes six verses to talk about spiritual gifts in the church. He takes seven verses to talk about how we should relate to governing authorities. He takes 30 verses to talk about how the strong and the weak in faith are to relate to one another in the church. So this is important. It's, it, we only have about four chapters of application and he takes more than a whole chapter just to deal with this one issue. So let's remind ourselves what's taking place in chapter 14. There's two groups of people that Paul is addressing here, the weak in faith, in fact, we know that from verse 1 of chapter 14. Except the one who is weak in faith. And then there's also the one who is strong in faith. The one who is weak in faith is the one who has scruples about these secondary issues where they feel like they can't engage in something or they can't participate in something because in their mind and in their conscience, that thing is wrong. Now, probably in the first century, it had to do with converted Jews. They felt it would be wrong to eat pork or to eat shrimp, or perhaps it had to do with eating meat sacrificed to idols. That was a big issue in the first century. And so whoever Paul is writing to feels in their conscience like they can't do certain things. They can't drink wine. To them, that's wrong. And so they totally abstain from wine. They totally abstain from meat. And they're also the person who observes certain days as more holy than others. They regard one day they observe, let's see, verse uh, 5. One person regards one day above another. 
Another person regards every day alike. Well, this person who's weak in faith is regarding the Sabbath as more holy than other days. They're regarding Passover and Pentecost and first fruits and the Day of Atonement, these special days as sacred holy days. But then you've got these Gentiles that have been converted and they just treat every day alike. They weren't raised the way the Jew was, where they observed Sabbath as a holy day. And so they just worship Jesus on every day. They just love him and worship him and every day is sacred to them. So you've got the weak who feel like they can't do certain things. Their conscience doesn't allow them liberty. And then you have the strong who can. They can participate in all of these various things without feeling self-condemned. In fact, let's look at the attitude of the strong. That comes out in chapter 14, verse 14. Paul says, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. So here's the attitude of the strong. Nothing is unclean in itself. And in context, he's talking about foods. No foods are unclean. Everything's available. Everything's permissible by God. There's nothing that, oh, well, that's, that's unclean. I can't touch that. There, there's nothing like that in the Christian life. So the strong in faith understand that revelation. Um, also, 1 Corinthians 10, 23, Paul says, All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. So here again, not only are all things clean, but all things are lawful. Now, the strong person understands that all things are lawful, but that doesn't mean that he will automatically just go ahead and do whatever is lawful because he knows that not everything's uh, profitable and not everything is going to edify his brother. So he'll evaluate the situation. He knows that he can go ahead and participate in that thing without feeling condemned by God, but he may not do it just because he loves his brother. He doesn't think it would edify his brother or it wouldn't be profitable either to himself or to those around him. And then the other passage that is helpful here, it's the attitude of the strong believer, is Titus 1.15. Paul writes there, To the pure, all things are pure. All things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. So when you put these scriptures together, you get the picture that all things are lawful, all things are clean, all things are pure, to those who have faith, to those who understand this revelation of God's creation, that it's good, God has given these good gifts, we can enjoy them, we can partake of them without being condemned in our conscience. That's the person who's strong in faith. But the weak in faith says, no, 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 no. I, there are certain things that are not clean. They're not lawful. They're not pure. And I can't participate in them. And neither should you. And that's where the problem comes in. Because the weak will judge the strong for doing things they don't think are right. And the strong will despise the weak because they think that that guy's just a legalist. He's a Pharisee. What, he, can, he can't do that. I mean, what's the matter with him? Doesn't he understand these things? <laughs> and so you've got the problem of judging and despising going on within the church, probably between uh, converted Jews and converted Gentiles. You have this rift, these, these difficulties. Now, in verses 1 to 12, Paul's point is that the strong and the weak have to have correct attitudes towards one another. 
The strong don't despise the weak. The weak don't judge the strong. And we saw five different reasons last week why believers should not judge one another. And I'm just going to repeat those, bring us all back up to speed. Number one, because God has accepted both of you. So why do you judge each other? God has accepted you. Number two, because you are not his master. Christ is. Number three, because God is going to make that other believer stand. Where you think that he's so wrong, God is able to make him stand and he will make him stand according to Romans 14, I think it's verse 4. Number four, because that believer is living for the Lord. And Paul makes a big deal of this. Even the weak believer, he's doing what he's doing for the Lord. He's refraining from eating that meat because he thinks it will please the Lord. He's regarding this day as sacred because he thinks that will please the Lord. So his heart motivation is that he loves the Lord and he's trying to please God. The strong believer, same thing. He eats and he gives thanks and he's grateful to God. So he's doing what he's doing for the Lord too. So you've got both of these types of believers. They're doing what they're doing for the Lord. So why do you judge each other? Your hearts are right. You're, you're both seeking to bring God glory. And then number five, because we will all stand before God to be judged one day. So why do we judge each other ahead of time? God's the judge, not us. Now, as we come to verse 13 and work our way down from there, things are a little bit different. From this point on, Paul is going to talk to the strong believer and he's going to tell them that he has to have correct actions toward the weak believer. We're not talking about attitudes at this point. We're talking about actions. And he's, he's putting all of his emphasis now and directing it to the strong, the strong believer who has liberty in Christ. So from verse 13 on, everything is directed to the strong believer. So would you classify yourself this morning as one who's weak in faith or one who's strong in faith? If you think that you are strong in faith and you understand your liberty in Christ, then take special note this morning because Paul's words are directed especially to you. He wants you to hear what he's about to say. He wants those who understand their liberty to get it this morning. Okay, now if we were to divide up these sections of Scripture, 14, 1 to 12, the basic command is accept one another. That's verse 1. Verse 13 to 23, the basic command is build up one another. That's verse 19. And then chapter 15, verses 1 to 7, the basic command is please one another. So accept one another, build up one another, and then please one another. And this morning, I'm going to adopt the practice that Paul gives to Timothy when he tells Timothy how to minister the word of God in chapter, uh, it's 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. Paul tells Timothy, until I come, give attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and teaching. So basically he tells him that a minister of Jesus Christ is to do three things when he ministers to, to the word. He's to read it, the public reading of Scripture. He is to explain it, that's teaching. And then he's to apply it, that's exhortation. So read the text, explain the text, and apply the text. 
Now you say, well, that is so simple. Well, that's really what the job of a minister is. <laughs> All, his job is to take this book, this word, this living word of God, make them to hear it, make them to understand it, and make them to know how to apply it to their lives. Very simple. That's the approach I want to take today. So we're just going to read it, first of all, and then we're going to move through it verse by verse, and I'm going to try to help you to understand what Paul's argument is all the way through, and then I'm going to try to help you apply the teaching that he gives. So let's just read the text, first of all. So go back with me to chapter 14. And we're going to pick it up in verse 13 and then go on through 15.7. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. Now, we have a chapter division, but this is a bad chapter division because he hasn't changed the subject. <laughs> chapter divisions were, they were added hundreds of years after the Bible was written and the verse of uh, numbers as well. So just pretend like there's no chapter division here. Now, we who are strong... We know who that is, right? If we've been following his argument, the strong in faith ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. So that through perseverance, and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Notice how Paul begins this section. Now accept the one who is weak in faith. Notice how he ends it. Now accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. You got these two bookends. Accept one another. Chapter 14, verse 1. Chapter 15, verse 7. Everything in between helps us to understand why and how we are to accept each other. 
So we've read the text. Now let me try to explain the text. So let's just go back to chapter 14, verse 13, and we'll just do a verse-by-verse commentary. (laughs) All right? Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. When I think of that word obstacle, I think of an obstacle course. You know, people who are in the military or boot camp, they have to run this race, and it's an obstacle course, and they've got to climb walls and go through tunnels and jump over things. So what's an obstacle? It's something put in your path that makes it difficult for you to get to where you want to go, right? And Paul is saying to the strong brother, don't be an obstacle in your brother's path. He's traveling towards heaven. He's traveling towards Christ. Don't make it harder for him to get towards Jesus and to have a relationship with God and to go towards heaven. Don't put an obstacle in his path. And he also calls it a stumbling block. And the Greek word for stumbling block is the trigger on a snare or a trap. So what he's saying is, don't become, don't do anything that will ensnare your brother or trap him. Make it more difficult for him to live out the Christian life and to go towards Jesus. Help him on his way to heaven rather than become a hindrance. So when the strong believer exercises his liberty in the presence of the weak believer, that ensnares him. It trips him up. It puts an obstacle between him and Christ. It makes it harder for him to live out the Christian life. And so Paul is telling the strong believer, don't do that. So my question for us all this morning is, are we stumbling stones or are we stepping stones for other people? Are we helping them or hindering others in their Christian life? We need to be concerned about our brothers and sisters within the church, the local body of believers that we're a part of. How is my life affecting them? Is it affecting them for good or for ill? Okay, verse 14. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Now, notice that Paul says here, I know and am convinced about this. In other words, Paul did not take the opinion of the weak believer. He says the weak believer's opinion is wrong here. This is the right opinion. Nothing is unclean in itself. But even though he's wrong, he says you're not to despise him. Why? Because it's his conviction based on many different factors, and he can't just snap his fingers and change that conviction. It happens over time as he gets to understand and grow in his Christian life and understand things more deeply. So Paul was convinced that he was wrong in his convictions, but yet he says, don't despise that brother. Nothing is unclean in itself. So pork is not unclean in itself. Shrimp is not unclean in itself. In fact, When Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, he said to them that um, it's not what goes into a man that defiles a man, but that which proceeds out of his heart. And then it says in parentheses, thus he declared all foods clean. So Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry was declaring that all foods were clean. They don't defile you. It's your bad, wicked heart that defiles you and produces all this sin. Now, verse 15, 
For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Sometimes Paul says that we can destroy our brother with our food. Sometimes he says our brother is hurt because of our food. So he's saying that you're, you can harm your brother. His relationship to God, his faith in Christ, his walk with the Lord. You need to be careful that you don't harm his faith or destroy his peace or his comfort in God. You need to be very careful about that. So here's the issue. If you have faith to know your liberty in Christ, but yet you exercise that liberty in the presence of someone who doesn't have that liberty, and that is going to mess them up, you're not walking according to love. You're not loving your brother. Loving your brother will mean that you will be willing to put aside your liberty for his sake. That's Paul's point. And then verse 16, Therefore do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. What was for them a good thing? Well, it was meat, wine, worshiping every day alike. Those are good things to them. But if they go ahead and exercise those things in the presence of the person weak in faith, it's going to be spoken of as an evil. That person weak in faith is going to say, how can you be doing that? How can you eat that meat? Don't you know it could have been sacrificed to an idol? You, why are you eating pork? That's off limits. God is, that's taboo. God has said we should not eat that, that kind of meat. So if you do it in their presence, it's going to be spoken of as evil, even though it's actually a good thing. For the kingdom of God, verse 17, is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy and the Holy Spirit. So what Paul is doing here is he's focusing in on what is really important. He's saying, don't be preoccupied with your right to eat and drink whatever you want. The kingdom is not about that. The kingdom of God is about righteousness, peace, and joy. And I think he's talking about practical righteousness here. In the earlier part of Romans, righteousness is God's imputed righteousness through faith, where we're justified. That, I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here. I think he's talking about practical daily righteousness, where you live out what is right in the sight of God. And I believe that because peace and joy are experiential realities not things that are imputed to you. You actually experience peace in the Holy Spirit and you experience joy in the Holy Spirit. So this is what I think he's getting at. Don't become fixated on food or on your right to eat what you want or to drink this alcohol that you have a right to drink, that you have liberty to drink it. That's not important. The important thing is that you demonstrate righteousness in your life and that you experience and manifest peace and joy. How those two things are lacking in the world. You know, when, you, when a person really demonstrates peace and joy before other people, that's an those are attractive qualities. People will be attracted to you. <laughs> if you have a real sincere true joy in the Holy Spirit. And when everything's going wrong, you have this inner peace where you're not just flipping out and stressed, but you, you can handle it because you have this peace inside. So Paul says, the kingdom of God isn't about eating and drinking. Don't, don't make that a major thing. What you should be focusing on is righteousness and peace and joy and the Holy Spirit. 
Verse 18, for he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. In what way? He who in what way serves Christ? Well, serves Christ in righteousness. Serves Christ with joy and with peace. If you serve Christ that way, God accepts you. He delights in you when you serve Christ that way. And your neighbor approves of you. He's attracted to that kind of life because it's supernatural. And he doesn't have it in his own life. And he, he wishes that he had peace and he had joy in his life. Verse 19. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Now, it says, so then we pursue. I think that's, that's a possible translation, but a better translation is, so then let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Almost every other translation I consulted makes this a command rather than a declaration. So I think we should take it that way. Bridge Church, let us pursue the things which make for peace amongst us and build up each other. Let's do that. He says, let us pursue it. Let us strive after those things. If we insist on our freedoms, we're going to end up tearing people down. If we, we're going to make them emboldened to follow our example to do what we do, and they don't have the faith to do what we do, and so they're going to be condemned in their conscience, and they're going to feel distant from God. And so we need to be careful about that. Verse 20. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. So the opposite of building up, verse 19, is tearing down. Verse 20, and do not tear anyone down just for the sake of stupid food. Who cares? <laughs> it's not important, folks. Yes, it's true. All things indeed are clean. Your pork chops are clean. Your ham sandwich is clean. You can have that bacon if you want it. You can have a glass of wine. Those things are clean, but they're evil for this person over here who's weak in faith. And he's going to give offense. So don't, don't give offense to that person who's weak in faith. Verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. It's much more important to help your brother on the way to heaven than to eat whatever you want. His soul is more important than your personal enjoyment. Verse 22, the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. Now let's take that statement. The faith which you have, you have the faith to drink a glass of wine. You have the faith to eat pork, okay? Have that as your own conviction. Don't try to force that conviction on anybody else. It won't work. Not until they're ready to receive that conviction. It's going to take them coming to a new area of understanding in their Christian life before they're open to that liberty. So just have it as your own conviction before God. And you'll be happy if you don't condemn yourself and what you approve. So if you can go ahead and enjoy this liberty, you approve it, you're a happy man if you can go ahead and not condemn yourself in what you approve. In other words, when you do that, you thank God for whatever it is you're eating or drinking. You give him thanks. You glorify him. You say, Lord, this came from the fruit of the ground. I bless you for it. I thank you for the taste. I thank you for 
just this thing, whatever it is. Happy is the person who can do that. Okay, then verse 23, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. So let's say you're weak in faith and you don't understand your liberty in Christ to do certain things. If you go ahead and eat or drink, Paul says you're condemned. Not by God, but your conscience condemns you. And you're going to feel a distancing in your relationship with God because you feel like you've sinned. Even though in reality you haven't because all things are clean. But in yourself, you're going to feel, oh, Lord, I I shouldn't have done that. I'm so sorry, Lord. You're going to feel this self-condemnation. And that's because your eating was not from faith. You didn't believe that God had made this available to you and it was permissible to you. You thought it was wrong and you went ahead and did it anyway. And so whatever is not from faith is sin. Very short, concise definition of sin. Whatever is not from faith. So whatever we do must be out of faith. 15.1 Now we who are strong, that's the strong in faith, ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. Those are the weak in faith. And not just please ourselves. So how do the strong bear the weaknesses of the weak? By not indulging their liberties when the weak may be hurt by them. That's how. They willingly refrain from drinking that alcohol or from eating that pork or that piece of meat that might offend another brother. When they're with that other person, they refrain from doing it. They don't please themselves. They please their brother. They're conscious of of their brother's faith and how they can build up their brother rather than tear him down. Verse 2, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. This strikes at our self-centered hearts because we really want to please ourselves a lot of times. And Paul says, no. No, you have to get out of that mindset. You are not there to please yourself. You're there to please the people around you. You're to be thinking of their good. How can you make them stronger in their faith, not weaker? The Christian life is a selfless life. And so we have to learn to put others before ourselves. Verse 3, for even Christ did not please himself. So what's he doing? He's bringing up Jesus Christ as our example in all of this. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you, Father, fell on me. He's quoting Psalm 69, 9. And he's saying, look at Jesus Christ as your example. He didn't please himself. If Jesus wanted to please himself, he never would have left heaven in the first place. He never would have become incarnate. He never would have subjected himself to the insults and the mockery of sinners, right? They called Jesus a drunkard, a glutton. They called him a blasphemer. They said, we were not born of fornication, implying that you were, your mother had fornication. That's how you were born. They mocked him when he was on the cross. They insulted the Holy Son of God. If Jesus wanted to please himself, he wouldn't have made himself vulnerable to all of that, all of that suffering and persecution. But instead he did. He willingly did that. He pleased us rather than himself. And so the strong must follow his example and not insist on their rights. There's a bracelet that I have that says, I am third. And uh, I don't know who put that together, but what this bracelet means is 
God is first, others are second, I'm third. Um, and, and that's really good to meditate on. When you're in a conflict with someone, ask yourself, am I putting myself before them? Like Paul even says in Philippians 2, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. And then since he's quoted Psalm 69.9, in verse 4, he tells us a little bit about the purpose of Scripture, because he just quoted Scripture. And he, now he's talking about the Old Testament Scripture. For whatever was written in earlier times, that's the Old Testament, was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now, the Old Testament Scriptures were written for the Jews who were living at the time they were written. They were written for them. So, if, you know, we look at the Old Testament. The Old Testament wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. If you can catch that distinction. When Isaiah prophesied, he was prophesying for the benefit primarily of the people that he was living around at that time. Or when David wrote a psalm, that psalm ministered to the people that heard it at that time. So it was written to the people of their day, but it has meaningful relevance and application for us because he says <clears throat> whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction for us now notice what flows out of the scriptures perseverance encouragement and hope that's what comes from the scriptures perseverance that tells us that living this kind of christian life is not going to be easy. You're going to have to persevere. You don't have to persevere in easy things, but you have to persevere when things are hard. To please others before yourself is a difficult thing, and that's why it requires perseverance, and so we need to go to the scriptures to get the perseverance that we need to keep on going when things get hard. We are also going to need encouragement to keep on going. The scriptures provide that encouragement, and we're going to need hope that there's a final glorious reward at the end of this life, a hope, our eternal hope. The scriptures give us that as well. You see how valuable the scriptures are in the believer's life. If we're going to make it all the way to the end, we need the scriptures as the fuel, as the energy, as the food to sustain us day after day after day until we reach our goal. And so that's why it's so important for us to read the scriptures, to study them, to meditate on them, to memorize them, to make them our food and our drink for our soul every single day. Now, he tells us that perseverance, encouragement, and hope come through the scriptures, but then notice what he says in verse 5. Now may the God, and basically he's praying as he's writing, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. So the uh, perseverance and encouragement come through the scriptures, but it's actually God who is the one behind the scriptures giving those things. God uses means to grant perseverance, and the means is the word of God. So God gives it, but he gives it through the, the medium of this book. So he prays, may God give you perseverance. May God give you encouragement 
to be of the same mind. Now here we're getting back to our same theme again. Paul is desiring unity in the church. Not people squabbling over whether they can eat this or that, or whether they should worship on this day or that day. He wants unity. He wants them to be of the same mind with one another. And we know that because he says in verse 6, so that with one accord, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that tell you about what glorifies God? The unity of the church, right? If we, with one voice and in one accord, glorify God, that means unity uh, Unity glorifies God. It glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. Disunity does not glorify God. God gets no glory when the church is splintered and fractured and there's divisions and people are fighting and arguing and squabbling. But, interesting, Paul knew that there was differences of opinions in this church. But yet he still says, I want you to lift up one voice, be of the same mind, with one accord, so it must be possible to have different opinions in the church and still have that essential unity that Paul's talking about that glorifies God. How is that possible? I think it's possible when we die to self and live to please our brother and sister, that creates the kind of unity. It's not having every single doctrinal conviction exactly the same amongst every person in the church. That's maybe an external conformity, but he's talking about an inward inward spiritual unity when we're regarding one another above ourselves and we're dying to self and we're seeking to build up each other. And when we're doing that, there is this one accord. There's this one voice. There's this same mind that glorifies God. And then he comes to the very end of his argument in verse 7. Therefore, here's the conclusion, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Well, how did Christ accept us to the glory of God? With our warts and all, right? With all of our sin, with all of our failings, he accepted us. He washed us. He forgave us of everything we'd ever done. He keeps on forgiving us of all of our sins. In all of our wretchedness, we were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, hateful, hating one another. There was nothing within us to attract God's love, but yet he warmly welcomed us into his fellowship. He accepted us. He embraced us. And he says, now you do the same thing to other people. With all their warts, with all their failings, with all, and we all have them, right? Every single one of us is affected by the fall. And we carry about weaknesses in our lives. And we don't always do what is righteous in God's sight. But accept one another. Instead of despising or judging, just receive each other. Love each other. Embrace each other. Pursue peace with one another. Build up one another. Now who is God calling us to accept? Well, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us. It seems to me he's saying, everybody that Christ has accepted, you must accept. If Christ has accepted them, you can't reject them. You know, there's that old saying, uh, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. Well, the church is a family. You don't get to choose your family. You have to accept them. You have to embrace them because they're a family. 
You're the family of God. And so, if God has accepted, if God has saved, if God has justified somebody, then you may not withhold fellowship from that person and say, you know, you're just too different from me. I just, I just can't fellowship with you. I mean, it's true. We are very different from each other. Different nationality, different languages sometimes, beliefs, denominations. We have different convictions about things. We come from different financial statuses and educational backgrounds, different skin colors. There's lots of things that make us different. It doesn't matter. We ex if Christ has accepted you, then I accept you. Period. That's just the end of it. We, 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 there's no option when it comes to this. Okay, so there's my attempt to expound the text and explain it. How should we apply it? Well, it's pretty simple. Be willing to give up your liberty for the sake of those who are weak in faith. That's the bottom line. Be willing to give it up. And in situations where it might harm your brother, don't just be willing to do it. Do it. Give up your liberty. When should we be willing to give up our liberty for the weak? We have to make a distinction here. We have to make a distinction between someone that you are actually stumbling and someone who's just kind of bugged about what you're doing. Now, let's see if I can explain this to you. Paul is talking about a situation where you can harm that person. Where you can harm their faith. There are lots of situations where someone doesn't like what you're doing, they don't agree with it, and they want you to stop, but you're not harming their faith. They're not tempted to do what you're doing. They're not tempted to um, be condemned in their conscience by the action. They'll never do that thing. They'll never, whatever you're doing, they'll never touch it with a 10-foot pole. So there's no danger about you stumbling them in their faith. So we need to make a distinction between times when we are going to stumble someone and actually harm their faith, and times when people are just being a little bit, I don't know what, how even how to call it. They're just bugged by what you're doing, and, and they, they make it a law, and they say you shouldn't do it. Does that make sense, or maybe I should try from a different angle? <laughs> so it's a little bit hard to explain this concept. Um, let me give you a couple of examples that might help. So, you tell another Christian friend in your church that you love Christian rap. <laughs> and they say, wait a minute, that's of the devil. How could you love Christian rap? That's demonic. No Christian should ever listen to Christian rap. And so now you have a decision to make. Does God want you to stop listening to it? Is this going to harm my brother's faith if I listen to Christian rap? Like if you're in the car and you turn it on while you're driving down the road, is that going to harm his faith? Well, in this case, probably not. He doesn't, he doesn't like it. He thinks it's of the devil, but it's, he's not going to be tempted to listen to it when he's on his own time because he hates it anyway, to begin with. So, but even then, okay, let's, let's just take that example. He's just bugged by it, but still, Christian love would mean, why push it when I'm with him in the car? I just won't listen to it while he's with me in the car. I know it's really not going to harm his faith, but I'm just out of love to him. I'll defer. Okay, example number two. Let's say that you enjoy smoking a cigar occasionally. <laughs> now, I've never smoked a cigar, so I don't even know what it's like to smoke a cigar. But <laughs> some people have, and some Christians I know, occasionally smoke cigars. 
And they invite another Christian brother over to hang out with them, and they offer him a cigar. Now, the, the brother that's being offered the cigar feels like it's wrong, that that would be sin. It's not right for him to do it. But he goes ahead and does it anyway because he sees you doing it, and he's following your example, and afterwards his conscience smites him, and he feels terrible because he feels, man, I, what, Lord, what did I do that for? Why, why did I do that? I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. He feels condemned. He feels like he has sinned. And in fact, in one sense, he has, because whatever is not from faith is sin. So what you have actually stumbled your brother in that situation. You have hurt, you've damaged his faith. Your actions have led him into sin, even though it wasn't sin for you, it was sin for him. And so you have hurt him rather than helped him. So there's just two examples. You can come up with your own examples, right? I mean, there's lots of them that we could come up with. But verse 22, I think, is the guiding principle in all of these things. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Enjoy your liberty, but enjoy it when it's not going to hurt anybody else. That may mean just doing it in private. If it's having a glass of wine, if it's eating a piece of meat, I don't know. And, there's so many different things. There are these, the gray areas of the Christian life that Christians differ on. Just, just have that as your own conviction between you and God. Enjoy what God has given you, but be concerned and careful when you're around your brother that you don't do anything that would lead him into sin. So the bottom line is this, I think. Be far more concerned about building up your brother than insisting on your rights. You can always exercise your liberty in private, but when you're with your brother, do what will help him in his walk with God. Amen. Amen. Lord, please help us to walk this out in our lives, to put it into practice. Give us wisdom, Lord, to know when we've come into a situation that we, we could be harming our brother and to be very careful about it. We pray that we would accept one another Build up one another and please one another to the glory of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.